मोबाइल फोन और टैबलेट का उपयोग कर सकते हैं लेकिन वॉइस कॉल करने की इजाजत नहीं है सुरक्षा आवश्यकता के तौर पर कृपया ध्यान रखें कि आपातकालीन द्वार कहां स्थित हैं। धन्यवाद I have to say I'm not that excited about internet access being available on international flights. I've liked that there's been a kind of enforced silence while you're arcing your way around the globe. And I like it mostly because you get to think about what you're really doing when you travel these long distances. Whether it's to reunite with family, to be with your partner, to explore a previously unexplored place, or even to attend the wedding of some great friends. And besides this, I'm told that a little bit of quiet before arriving in India is never a bad thing. Now this is the part of the episode where we usually get to meet our guest and we start this story. But I'm still several hours away from our guest. I'm sitting in a minibus as our driver argues with a toll booth operator. I think they're arguing about whether the minibus is in fact a bus or a maxi cab, which of course determines the amount of the toll we have to pay. So I start talking with another traveller on the bus. She was also headed to the wedding I was going to. And of course, she was a lawyer with an amazing story to tell. Her name was Barbara Jackman, and luckily for you, listener, my conversation with her makes up the next episode of Lawyer by Day, the one that follows straight after this one. So keep an eye out for that. It's a few hours on the bus before we arrive in the town of Tajara. It's about 50 kilometres northeast of Elwa in Rajasthan. Our attention very quickly turns to a large early 19th century fort sitting on a nearby hill. We get closer to the base of the hill and start winding our way around the side, just narrowly missing the workers who are still constructing the road with large stone blocks. As we reach the top of the hill and the Tajara Fort Palace, here we see my good friends, J. Marl and Rebecca, the wedding couple, standing in an archway to greet us for this multi-day festival to celebrate their wedding. The musicians you're hearing now were playing on the steps just near them. And it was just so great to see Rebecca and Jay there, in this surreal fort palace, looking amazing. You probably know where this is headed. Rebecca is a lawyer by day, and this is a podcast about lawyers' hidden stories. Hi, my name is Rebecca Lockwood. I'm a teacher lawyer from Canada, now living in the UK. I've been running my own business called Grammatica International since 2012. Grammatica designs legal writing and skills courses for internationally trained lawyers and new lawyers. 
I've also been running my own practice in immigration and refugee law for the past two years, but I've just put that down to take up a full-time position teaching law at a private law school in the UK. Um, but I still have Grammatica running on the side as well. How did you come to law school knowing that refugee law was important to you? How did you know that beforehand? Well, I think it was quite personal. Um, my family, my family background has been a story of migration for survival um, and for romance. And um, there's been a lot of crisscrossing of oceans for different reasons with my parents and their grandparents and their grandparents before that. Um, so technically I'm a first generation Canadian. Well, I guess I'd be second generation. I was born there, but neither of my parents were. Um, and my mom left South Africa. Uh, to come to, she, well, she left South Africa to, and moved to England during the days of apartheid because of my grandmother's uh, work in the anti-apartheid movement, and um, and so they didn't really have any choice but to flee, uh, flee South Africa. And my father was born in England, um, but came to Canada because his mother was Canadian and his father was English, and. His, his mum had gone over to England with her parents because of some, because of work or something, and um, but then my my paternal grandmother wanted to go back to her homeland, so she took her little baby boy and her husband, her British husband, and brought them back to Canada. So, uh, and then my dad ended up going to London in the 70s in the hopes of studying a master's. And met my mum, who was there and had grown up in London at this point. And then he brought her back to Canada um, and they set up a family in Toronto, which is where I was born. So there's all of these stories of, you know, migration for these really interesting and sometimes uh, sad reasons, but sometimes very happy ones as well. So I was always fascinated by the movement of people, I think. And, um, and I had studied sociology with a focus on sort of j uh, race, gender, and class studies. And I was curious about sort of the stratification of society and how immigrants and non-citizens sort of fit into that. And um, so when I went to law school, I had a very sort of social justice focus already. That's why I was going to law school. And um, immigration, I knew was something of interest to me from a sociological perspective. So I wanted to learn more about it from a legal one. And once I actually started learning about the details of it, it was kind of, I'm sure you'll, you'll know, like some areas of law just like click and some areas of law just don't. Um, and, um, and if you're lucky enough to study in law school, the, a course that clicks, then you know you're sort of onto something. And for me, it was immigration and refugee law and family law that kind of clicked the most. So, um, so it was a bit, yeah, a bit sort of one, things built upon each other and this is where I knew I wanted to go. Do you have a clear sense of how your grandmother's fight against apartheid may have shaped the values that you hold today? Yeah, definitely. She she was a she was an activist. She was a um, she was a socialist. She is a socialist. She is an activist. And we knew that from a very young age, me and my sisters, although we grew up in Canada and she was always in England and we would visit each other a lot. Um, but it was also the way that my mom spoke about her. 
and the way that her my mom's whole childhood was was full of this activism was full of people you know meetings in their living room because my grandmother continued in the anti-apartheid fight from london after she left and so she was working you know a job or two jobs and with with all of these um these meetings these anc meetings at the time so it was you know it was clear that my grandmother had a um she had a belief in equality and she she it was worth sacrificing um a lot of things in order to fight for that and um and she wasn't just doing it for herself because at that point she was she was safe in the sense she had she had left south africa but there was it, this was her home and this and her country still wasn't wasn't safe for others at all and certainly not others like her who were of mixed race and considered um less than um so we knew that me and my sister is growing up and the idea of um you know advocating for change advocating for others um even if you're not in that same position thankfully is is worth it so i think that's definitely yeah she's definitely in, instilled that sort of political <laughs> fight in me um even from afar even if she doesn't know it or doesn't want to admit to it <laughs> do you have a sense of how your dad and your mum moving throughout the world for love has an, had an impact on you Well, I guess I never saw an ocean or a border as an obstacle. <laughs> um in when it came to love or relationships or possibilities of love or relationships. So, Jamal and I met when as you know, in Montreal when he came to do an exchange where I was and I was studying my undergrad there and he was doing his second undergrad in nursing and he he we had a class together in um it was a sociology class health and development and uh we met in that class and we became fast friends and it was 3 year we there was only one semester though we were in the same place and then he he left and went to Europe and I went to Europe for an exchange and we can we saw each other in Europe and um but we made remained friends and had this sort of you know these long exchanges through email um over the, the next 3 years and we just maintained this lovely friendship um and then at one point i was living in spain and i i um he was in australia at the time and i invited him over to come to to spain uh he wanted to learn spanish and i said well why don't you come to spain and like learn spanish here for a couple of months um and then he did and then it it was very evidently love and he never left <laughs> but you know but for the next 7 years um until now we've been sort of crisscrossing the world doing our own thing pursuing our kind of um our careers and our and our goals and not really being able to do it in the same place but that the you know i think a lot of people might have given up after the first you know after the first separation um but it just didn't i was just not persuaded that, that was a a good enough reason um to say no i just to, to to say no that this couldn't work like there were so many well yes we can we just have to plan it we just have to s- sort out who goes where when um so it's been the past you know 7 years of sort of like following each other around the world um 
okay, so I'm here for now. So I have some time off, so I'll come and see you. And I don't know, it's just, it's been, it's been a really lovely game of tag. Um, and, uh, and it's worked out. And now we're here yeah, together, finally, in the same place and, you know, moving together as a unit. So, um, so yeah, but I guess I, I, that this whole experience has definitely been informed by my parents and their parents and, you know, that love knows no bounds in a very literal sense. The travel that you're talking about, I think, took you to the UK, to India, to Canada, to Australia. I, I'm not sure if I'm missing any countries there. But Spain. Spain, Spain as well. I knew I'd missed one at least. <laughs> When you're trying to think about work, running a business mm. on Jay's part, developing a, a research project and doing research and involving travel between countries as well, how, how do you need to think about the work that you want to do and how you engage with mentors like Barb? Just as a quick note, when I say Barb, I mean Barbara Jackman, the lawyer I met on the bus earlier in this episode and who I interview for the next episode of Lawyer by Day. Barb was Rebecca's supervisor both when Rebecca was a university intern, but also later as a trainee or article clerk. Did you find it easy to make sense of how you would do the work that you wanted to do and have the impact that you wanted to have? I, I, was, I was very set on... I knew what I wanted to do. Um, I just know how I was going to do it. Um, the how to me was, has always been the tricky question. Um, but when it came to travel and work and, you know, relationships and, um, and values, um, I think the first thing was sort of figuring out my priorities uh, and what what was the most important thing to me at that point. And so over the past couple of years, um, the priority for me has been flexibility so that I can be with Jay after so many years of being apart and also still continuing my business and being able to um, grow my skills and, and help people and and do work that I really love. Um, and in terms of, you know, how do I do all of these things and still, you know, be part of a team and get the benefit of mentorship from people like Barb? Um, well, in, thankfully, in, in that case, when I was an article student and then working for Barb after that as an employee, um, her firm, Jacqueline and Zami and Associates, is... Uh, sort of an umbrella firm. So there's multiple different practices that work within it in association with each other. And I don't know if that's something that you have in Australia, but in Canada, it's pretty common, um, where a group of lawyers who have small practices join together in association and they continue running their businesses as individual businesses, but they work together as one firm. And so a client, if a client hires, you know, Barb, for something, then they hire her for something. They don't hire her sort of law partner, Hadi Nazami, for that. He has he's a separate business. So I, you know, my first sort of exposure to the world of law were were these sort of creative setups 
So I decided to join part of that setup. And uh, I started my own practice in association with hers just before I moved to India to be with Jay for his research. And I, you know, I knew this was going to be able to provide me with the flexibility to actually like run a, run a business and work the way that I wanted to, but also be part of something a little bit bigger and have a team in Canada on the ground when I return, like have a place to receive mail, have an office, things like that. Um, so it kind of worked out, it worked out really perfectly in that sense because it, I got to benefit from the mentorship and the team spirit of the firm and also do things um, like actually do the day-to-day running of the business in the way that I wanted to. Um, and then I just crafted this really unusual practice, uh, virtual mobile practice um, that allowed me to sort of build um, business connections abroad and also have sort of a home base in Toronto and collect clients um, in all parts of the world as, as a result of that. Um, and then I also had my, my teaching, which formed a big part of the way the past couple of years I've worked. So I, I was teaching intensive courses, so I'd be back in Toronto teaching, you know, a two or three week course. Um, so I know I'd have to be back there for that. And, but then after that, I could continue moving and, and motoring around. So the past couple of years for me has really been about priority setting. Um, well, I think it's always about priority setting. It's not just the past couple of years, but I really had to be honest and and recognize that I might be giving something up in order to do something else. What did your mobile practice look like? The one you said you kind of established and that allowed you to make some of those connections internationally. What did that practice involve? Um, so on a, in a, on a very day-to-day basis, it involved me and my laptop in a hotel room, um, and <laughs> trying to, you know, up at, you know, 1am India time. So I could be sort of within office hours, Canada time, because that's where a lot of my clients were. Um, so that's what it looked like on a sort of unglamorous, uh, basis. But in terms of sort of business, it, it just it allowed me to make connections with people face to face that I wouldn't um, normally get to. So I, for example, I started an affiliation with a law firm in in Delhi, India, and they were an international law firm that did a lot of litigation in India. Uh, but they, because of their international sort of focus, they had a lot of clients. Um, and a lot of sort of partners and, and associates abroad. And so I was put in touch with them by, you know, a, sort of a friend of a friend. And we started an affiliation where um, they would uh, refer clients to me who came to them with, you know, questions about immigration to Canada. And so I would work with a client and consult with them about their best options. And if there was anything that needed to be done on the ground in Delhi or in India, uh, as there is, there's lots of paperwork involved in these things, um, then the firm could handle it there. And they, they helped me a lot in sort of sourcing clients. And likewise for them, I sourced a lot of clients um, from Canada or other places that had questions about Indian law or had questions about um, some kind of, some, dis- some dispute, some legal issue that required some Indian legal knowledge. So there was sort of a cross referral between the two our two practices, and that, that's been a really interesting experience. 
but I don't think I, I never, I don't, it's not that I don't think, I know I never would have met them if I hadn't, if I hadn't have been living in India and, and, um, and meeting, you know, meeting people there and being able to have a face-to-face meeting with them. So, you know, that, that was probably the biggest, um, the biggest example of that sort of cross-pollination and, you know, um, business building strategies and contacts abroad. Now, you, of course, have for several years been running a business, a training organization. Can you tell me the name of that business and (laughs) what it is and what it involves? Yes. So, I've been uh, running Grammatica International since 2012. And that is a business that designs uh, courses for international lawyers and sometimes newer lawyers in legal writing and skills. So the focus there has been um, for a long time on law and language because a lot of the the students and and clients I've been working with have been internationally trained lawyers from all over the world who are coming to Canada in most cases, but let's just say an English-speaking jurisdiction and they want to be able to practice in law in Canada or in English, but they want to do it, you know, at a sort of higher level linguistically. So I've been helping them with their sort of legal English training. Um, and I've also been designing sort of legal writing courses for larger institutions like Osgood and, um, and doing designing courses in those areas in their, for their international students or for their sort of newer students who, um, who need sort of a, I don't want to say extra help in writing, but who need a sort of a lay of the land of like, what does, what does Canadian legal study look like and how do you succeed in it? How do you, how do you write well? And and as we know, lawyers do a lot of writing. So writing skills are really key. So even if it's not um, English as a second language, um, every jurisdiction has its own style and, uh, and you know what does a what does a memo look like in Canada versus the UK or in Canada versus Brazil? Those they actually look very different, and the, the style, the tone of language is all very different. So Grammatica has sort of honed in on this area of legal language and designs uh, courses in it um, for institutions and individuals. That's the short answer. <laughs> Where did the idea for the business first come from? Well, prior to law, I was um, I was an English teacher in Spain, and I was working in bilingual curriculum development, and I was there for about three years, and so and I've always loved languages. So I was I was really um, I loved grammar. I loved the learning of new languages. I was really curious about it, and when I came back to Canada Canada to do law school, I realized that the law is a sort of language itself. There's a very particular way of speaking, a very particular way of writing, very particular vocabulary. And I noticed in myself that even though I considered myself a pretty good writer at the time, um, my writing had to change. I had to learn this new skill. And I think when you're, when your first language is English, you don't quite realize how, you don't realize when you're learning a language in your own language. But I recognize that in myself in the first, first year of law school. And I also thought for those students who were, you know, international students, this must be really challenging because it's, it's so language focused. It's so word focused. Um, it's so writing focused. And 
I, um, in the first summer between uh, first and second year, I just thought a lot about this and I decided to launch a business, which was Grammatica, um, in legal English. And so at first it was a very much an ESL kind of focused language course and it's sort of morphed since then. But I, it was, it was really that first year recognizing um, the connection between language and the law and just how interrelated they are. And, um, and also sort of building on my immediate or my prior experience in Spain as a, as a language instructor um, and curriculum developer. So it was, it was kind of this blending of, of worlds um, and experiences. Do you still feel the tension between the idea or need to practice law, be an entrepreneur or be a business person? and be a teacher can you is it easy to resolve all of those roles or aspirations and um and know where to go next gosh mark you're really asking the tough question <laughs> you're like asking all of my inner thoughts of the past six months um it's not an easy process no um when i like I said, I didn't expect to practice, uh, but then I started articling with Barb, and I, I loved it, and I, I I just it was it was fascinating, it was satisfying, it sort of lit kind of an intellectual spark that you know hadn't been satisfied in that way ever before, and um, and so that's why I started my own practice because um, I wanted to continue with it um, despite having an unusual sort of. Um, movement <laughs> like an unusual I knew my career wasn't going to have the, a similar trajectory as a lot of my peers but I um, I still wanted to do something in the law um, but practice is also really stressful <laughs> and to do your own practice is it, it is like you know to start your own practice is like starting a business but it's very particular and um, you know marketing is not the same Building clients is not the same. It, even bookkeeping is way more complicated than another business. Like if I compare Grammatica and my law practice, they were two very different kettles of fish. And one was easy to, to maneuver as a, as a business owner. Not easy, but easier. And the other was like just so complicated always. My law practice being the complication. And so um, after a while, it was... Uh, I, again, I had to look at priorities and figure out, well, what, you know, how can I still fulfill the things that I want to do um, and, you know, be creative and be sort of intellectually engaged in topics that are really important to me and that are satisfying? How do I help others? How do I also, like, put food on the table and pay my bills um, and now be a little bit more settled? Um, because finally, I don't, I don't have to be bouncing around everywhere. Whereas before, the the, the intense movement was also an, a necessity if I wanted to see my family, if I wanted to see my husband, my almost husband at the time. And um, and so now I, d I just don't have that 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 need anymore uh, because Jane and I are in the same place. So the tension there between you know all of these different interests and all of these different goals was it was definitely really strong. Um, but I had to sort of weigh up what what did I need most. Um, and I think that, so I've put down my practice for now, and I 
I'm, I don't want to consider my, I'm always going to be an advocate. Um, but I think there's different ways that we can do that as lawyers. And, you know, you can, you can work for change in different ways and apply your legal skills in different ways. For example, this refugee clinic at the law school with students and teaching students how to be good refugee lawyers, I think is going to be a new challenge for me, but also one I'm really excited to do because I still see that as being an advocate and still working in the same field, um, still get to sort of use my, like sort of light that intellectual spark and in that, that I love so much in this particular area of law um, without the stresses, stresses of practice. So uh, um, yeah, it's, but definitely there's been a lot of tension there and it's not an easy decision, especially if you, I think some people really want to be lawyers and they, they love practice and that's sort of the be all end all and they just can't envision anything else. Um, which isn't to say that, that being a lawyer is easy, but if you have that clarity, I think that's a lot easier to manage. Um, but I have a lot of friends and peers who I know are sort of curious about other areas of the world, but feel like they've spent, you know, eight years practically studying to become a lawyer and spending so much money on it. Um, that, you know, if you're not a lawyer, if you're not practicing, then what was the point of that? Um, so I think if there's any sort of other curiosities or interests, it's a little bit harder to, to balance and, and figure out that tension. Um, what advice would you give to a, a lawyer who has that curiosity about something different that might require them to make a big change? And they're just not sure how mm. or when to do it. What advice could you give them based on the experience you've had in the past few years? <laughs> um, sometimes jumping in the deep end is the best thing to do because you don't have time to think about it. <laughs> and you're, I think people are surprisingly capable and resilient when they just do it. Um, and when they push themselves to do it. So, you know, if there's a business idea or there's another job in a diff totally different field that is of interest, then, you know, I'm, I'm not to say don't plan or don't think about it, but like push yourself and try. Um, so that would be my first bit of advice. Uh, and also, you're, you're no less of a lawyer if you don't practice the law. You can still be a great lawyer and you can define yourself as whatever that is if you, even if you're not practicing. Um, and also, you can always go back to practicing if you want to. Um, and I think that lawyers are generally type A people with very conventional ideas of success. And that's not a bad thing. I'm also like that. Um, but I think it's harder then to do something that is sort of off the beaten path um, because it feels like that's not what you're supposed to be doing. <laughs> um, and I think for lawyers, practices is that, like you're, you're a lawyer to practice the law. Um, but all around us, we have examples of lawyers who are doing really interesting things for really interesting reasons and having, you know, doing, fulfilling, checking all the boxes, like, you know, making, providing for their families and themselves, um, doing interesting work, helping others, you know, being intellectually stimulated, being satisfied in their work, 
having some kind of work-life balance, like all of those boxes can be checked in different ways. Um, even if you're not a sort of quote-unquote traditional lawyer. So yeah, don't be afraid to be to be different and don't be afraid to be like don't be stuck in one definition of, of success I think is my last bit of advice. Thank you so much for having me and I do actually this is what I do want to add I want to say thank you for inviting me to speak on on lawyer by day and also kudos to you for starting this I think it's a really um, needed and interesting kind of conversation in the world of law so high five. <laughs> High five back at you. Thank you. <laughs> I appreciate it. Oh. Lawyer by Day is made by me, Mark Tyndall. I'm always keen to hear from listeners, particularly if you're a lawyer with a story to tell or you know a lawyer that has some story that they'd like to share on the show. You can get in touch with me by email, mark at lawyerbydaypodcast.com or on Twitter at lawyerbydaypod. I look forward to chatting with you again in a couple of weeks. Thank you.